I always thought I had to be either Cuban or American. And I, and I always thought there was, you know, that I couldn't be both at the same time. And one of the hardest things about writing the inaugural poem and that assignment was that I had to ask myself a very blunt question was, do I even love this country? Do I even belong to this country? Welcome to the Converge Lecture Series podcast, a co-production of 91.5 KRCC and Converge Lecture Series. I'm Jake Brownell. On this episode, we've got a very special guest, the poet Richard Blanco. Mr. President, Mr. Vice President, America, one today. One sun rose on us today, kindled over our shores, Peeking over the Smokies, greeting... That's Blanco reading at the second inauguration of President Barack Obama in 2013. He's one of only five writers ever to have held the title Inaugural Poet, a distinction he shares with Robert Frost and Maya Angelou. He was also the youngest, first Latino, immigrant, and gay person to hold the position. His poem, One Today, which he wrote for the occasion, is an ode to the kaleidoscopic variety of American life. Here, squeaky playground swings, trains whistling, or whispers across cafe tables. Here, the doors we open each day for each other, saying, Hello, Shalom, Buongiorno, Howdy, Namaste, or Buenos Dias, in the language my mother taught me. Blanco has spent much of his literary career reflecting on America and his place in it. In several books of poems and in his memoir, The Prince of Los Cocuyos, A Miami Childhood, he's written beautifully about growing up in Miami, the son of Cuban exiles, straddling the boundary between the culture of his family and the version of Americanness portrayed on the Brady Bunch or in the canned food aisle of the local Winn-Dixie. In addition to the inauguration, He's also been called upon to commemorate other important national occasions, including the reopening of the American Embassy in Cuba and a memorial to the victims of the Boston Marathon bombing. Blanco was invited to speak in Colorado Springs as part of Converge Lecture Series, which brings writers and poets to the city to share their reflections on art, life, and the topic of moral beauty. In advance of that, I reached Blanco at the Outlook Recording Studio in Bethel, Maine. He began with a poem from his latest book, boundaries. Dreaming a wall. He hates his neighbor's flowers, claims his are redder, bluer, whiter than theirs, believes his bees work harder, his soil richer, blacker. He hears bird songs sweeter in his trees, taller and fuller too, but not enough to screen out the nameless faces next door that he calls liars, thieves, who'd steal his juicier fruit, kill for his wetter rain and brighter sun. He keeps a steely eye on them, mocks the too cheery colors of their homes, too small and too close to his own, painted white with room to spare. He curses the giggles of their children, always barefoot in the yard, chasing their yappy dogs. He wishes them dead, 
closes his blinds, refuses to let light from their window pollute his eyes with their lives, denies their silhouettes, dining at the kitchen table, laughing in the living room, the goodnight kisses through every bedroom, slouched in his couch, grumbling over the news he dismisses as fake, he changes the channel to an old cowboy western. Amid the clamor of gunshots, he dozes off, thinking of his dream, where he stakes a line between him and all his neighbors, stabs the ground as he would their chests, forms a footing cast in blood-red earth, bends steel bars as he would their bones with his bare fists, and buries them in concrete. Mortar mixed thick with anger, each brick laid heavy with revenge, he smiles as he finishes the last course high enough to imagine them more miserable and lonely than him, alone inside his wall, sitting on his greener lawn, breathing his fresher air under his bluer, oh, so much more bluer sky. Richard Blanco, Thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. That poem, Dreaming a Wall, from your uh, latest collection of poems, Boundaries. Tell me about that poem. For folks who first became aware of you in 2013 when you were the inaugural poet at Barack Obama's second inauguration, in a way this poem feels a little bit like a sequel to that or or a response to that or in some way the yin to that poem's yang. Um, can you talk a little bit about what inspired you to write this poem and, and, and what what you were thinking? Sure. Um, well, that's a great way to put it. It's almost antithetical to the inaugural poem, which is uh, one today and speaks about our sense of unity, even though it's not always expressed. Um, this poem was obviously partly inspired by the theme of the book Boundaries, which deals with not just physical boundaries, but emotional boundaries and uh, psychological boundaries, uh, those dividing lines in terms of gender, race, class, and whatnot. So partly because of the theme of the book, but also what was going on politically, of course, with the wall. And though the wall is a physical manifestation, I think I think it, the poem speaks to that sense of division that we can all carry inside of us, that sense of, you know, us versus them mentality of, you know, this is my house, this is my land, this is my city. And so it's just sort of um, obviously a sarcastic or an ironic take on the psychology of that whole wall building issue as if, as if a wall could really solve anything. You know, so much of your work deals with boundaries and crossing boundaries and sort of the, the boundaries that delineate our identities as people. In this time that we're in right now, politically, uh, why do you think it's important to reflect on on boundaries from this perspective, from this sort of questioning how they might keep us separate? I think because we're seeing sort of a, a spike in, in that whole rhetoric, right, in that whole narrative. And this is, of course, nothing new. Um, you know, the, the old adage or cliche of divide and conquer <laughs> exists for a reason, right? And we're seeing that kind of that kind of tactic employed. 
I think it's important to always question those boundaries and those narratives because they're usually used to control people for the sake of greed, uh, for the sake of power, that whole idea of, you know, you're not like us, we're better than you. That, of course, is, is kind of the oldest game in the book. And I think what art does and what poetry does and uh, what words can do is subvert all that. Uh, and that's kind of what this poem was doing. That's kind of what my the, the whole book, the book as a whole does, is to subvert that and see and expose that narrative for what it is and see the absurdity of these artificial boundaries, these dividing lines. By being asked to speak at the inauguration in 2013 and, and uh, write a poem for that occasion, in some ways it seems like that would have, if you weren't already, kind of made you a political poet on some level. Uh, like That there's a sort of, it brings you into the fold uh, politically speaking, um, to be a part of an event like that. I mean, did did you have you seen yourself in the past as uh, a poet who is interested in politics and interested in kind of reflecting on our political moment through poetry, or is that something that has um, kind of grown since you were foisted into that position, so to speak? Sure, great question. Um, actually. Ironically, no. <laughs> um, in part, I was sort of apolitical, and uh, and that's because uh, I grew up in a very politically charged climate. So, uh, growing up as a Cuban American in Miami in the exile community, I kind of learned early on that the truth is sort of in the gray. That some of these boundaries, these narratives, were not not really what they're all cracked up to be. So, in a way, because you know, it was so polarized, right? I kind of even in my work, I tried to make my work. A, a bridge rather than a f another instrument or vehicle of polarization. And I've kind of always looked as, as to the poem political uh, in the sense of a third conversation, with not the black or, or the white, but the gray, but politically, how can we unite and think about more of our shared common humanity rather than, than protests. And so um, that's kind of how my work has been. And even the inaugural poem, and even where I stand now politically, even in this poem that we just read, you know, I'm trying to have a different conversation. And I think all, I think all poets in a way are trying to open up a third conversation. So we're political in that sense, but not political in the sense of blue state or red state, or, you know, clinging to one finite set of ideals or ideology, but rather, um, opening up another conversation. As I like to say, you know, good art answers questions, but great art asks them. And I think poems ask us new questions. And that's how I've always, that's the stance I've always tried to take. Um, and in that sense, I consider myself not so much a political poet, but what I like to consider myself a poet of the people. Uh, that being said, um, you know, certainly my work has changed, uh, but it also has been in sort of a natural outgrowth of of what I was writing about before, which is all about also boundaries, having to negotiate boundaries as a as a Cuban American, as a gay man, being socialized as a straight man, as a poet, an engineer, as an academic, and as a and as a, a very accessible and sort of poet of 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 the people, as I was saying. So so in that sense it feels very natural uh, and sort of just uh, sort of I sort of just waded into it very naturally. Part of that also, it seems to me that you are a deeply American poet in a way, you know, reflecting uh, such a fundamental American experience, this experience of uh, the immigrant, this experience of this sort of code switching that so many Americans uh, do on a daily basis. 
um, but not necessarily the kind of archetype of what it means to be an American as it's been presented throughout history. I mean, do you do you think of yourself in those terms, in terms of your relationship to America as a place and, and how you manifest that as a poet? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, it's a question and an obsession that's been on with me since practically the day I was born. My mother left Cuba seven months pregnant uh, with me. I was born in Madrid and 45 days after my birth, we emigrated to the United States. And when we were four, we moved from New York City to Miami. So by the time I was 45 days old, I belonged to three countries, to Cuba, to Spain, and to the United States. My newborn photo is my green card photo. So this whole essence of home and and identity and, again, what are the boundaries of those things and how to negotiate those boundaries uh, has been at the core of my work, right? That, That sense of belonging, of finding home. And of course, in that context, not only culture, but sexuality is a kind of a home and a belonging, but also country. What is one's nationality? Where are one's national loyalties? And what is one's sense of citizenship? And to be honest with you, you know, it's been a it's been a journey of exploring and investigating all those nuances and questions uh, throughout my entire body of work. But I always thought I had to pick. I always thought I had to be either Cuban or American. And I, and I always thought there was, you know, that I couldn't be both at the same time. And one of the hardest things about writing the inaugural poem and that assignment was that I had to ask myself a very blunt question was, do I even love this country? Do I even belong to this country? I mean, I had sort of circled around that question by asking, you know, what is an American, by asking what is... To be, what does it mean to be a Cuban in America? So the answer to that was what allowed me to write the poem and realizing that yes, my story as a as a chubby little gay Cuban American kid from a suburb in Miami that that's America. That's part of the great great American narrative. That my mother's story as a woman who was born in a dirt forum in Cuba that that's part of the American narrative, and that I didn't have to be you know little Peter Brady or Marsha Brady or any of those sitcom versions or those commercial or media versions of America. And so in a way, yes, it's sad that, I mean, not sad, it's kind of, um, it's kind of necessary that I be called in a way a Latino poet. But as I tell my students, um, you know, when I teach Latino literature, it's like we're calling it Latino literature, but this is really American literature, right? This is this is the very questions that 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 Whitman was asking, right? The very exploration and investigation of what does it mean to be American, what does it mean to be a country? So yeah, that's that's been my journey, and and I've ever since I read at the. Um, the poem that I wrote and read at the reopening of the U.S. Embassy in Havana, that's when it really hit me. Is like, oh, I don't have to choose. <laughs> I can be... So I'm trying to think myself also more as a global citizen uh, and thinking about what what that, what that means. Um, you know, I think we can all have an immigrant experience or s- something akin to an immigrant experience without leaving our country. If you move from uh, Miami to Seattle or from Seattle to Kansas City or from Kansas City to Chicago, you know, we have to we have to negotiate different different foods, different different histories, different uh, ways of speaking, um, different references. And so I think that's part of what I hope my work and uh, what I experience and what I try to express sort of gets at, that sort of really core base sense of, of identity that we all struggle with in one way or another. 
so sort of turning back to to your early life, I'm curious to know when poetry first resonated for you. <laughs> so uh, I think, you know, sometimes I, I couldn't have written my, my life story even if I, I tried. <laughs> but it all seems like this. I, I'm at that age where it's like you see all the pieces falling together. So I say that because I also realize I have another boundary. I'm a, I'm a civil engineer. So, or as I used to say, I'm an uncivil engineer. But so I'm an engineer and a poet. And so it's another another set of boundaries that I've had to negotiate and question, right? What is a right. poet and what, what's an engineer and why, why, why are those things so, so different? It was in engineering that I actually discovered poetry. Uh, because my job was about 60% writing, writing reports and studies and letters and proposals. And I started falling, my right brain kicked in and started falling in love with all the way language works and the nuances of language. And actually, I started really excelling at my job because of my writing. So I really dove deeper and deeper into it and uh, said, well, you know, I always wanted to do something creative, but I never intended to be a poet. I just thought, what's the weirdest thing I can do? And I was like, let's be a poet. And uh, like every poet, when they start, I wrote really horrible poems um, and really misguided poems, writing about daffodils and stuff like that and I'd never even seen a daffodil but my version of poetry was still you know dead white guys from Britain you know so <laughs> um, but there was one particular moment where I think I really got hooked on poetry and I just got poetry so to speak one aha moment I was reading uh, the red wheelbarrow by uh, William Carlos Williams I probably everybody in everybody in high school has read that right. poem and um, I was sitting in the family room watching my, which is open to the kitchen, watching my mother cook uh, as she'd done every day of my life that I can remember with her, what seemed to be the same apron with tomato sauce stains and the same dull nicked knives and chopping her onions and her bell peppers and her olive oil. And I just realized that's poetry, um, that poetry is about finding the extraordinary in the seemingly ordinary, just like the red wheelbarrow, um, so much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. And so much does depend on the simplest of things and, and that everything is pregnant with poetry, you know, that it's just there and, and the poet's job is just to sort of see it and, and then give it, and then give it to the readers, give it to the listeners, you know, press, those things that pass us by every day that we don't realize are very important. And they, we do, they are imprinted on us subconsciously, but the poet sort of brings it up to the conscious mind and gives it back to you. And that process of sort of honing that skill of observation and, and being able to, to bring, uh, I mean, to me, the best poetry and, and so many of your poems are sort of taking these concrete moments and then exploding them out into their their significance, their sort of connections to uh, your sense of meaning and to these larger concepts, uh, but in a very economical way. I mean, how do you uh, how do you go from just making an observation to and, and sort of uh, documenting the world around you to making that into a poem? The real honest answer is I don't know, <laughs> and by that by that I mean, of course, there's there's a twenty percent of things that's just is still the creative process is still a, a very mysterious thing, right? There's still a lot of, that we don't exactly know exactly how a poem comes to be, but 
we do show up and we do rehearse and we do practice and by practice I mean those are all the terrible poems we write and all the revisions we have to do and learning the skills and, and reading poetry so so all that goat comes into play but I think essentially uh, for me I, that's something that sort of is ingrained in in the poems that I write and how I write them it's what about the concrete world the, what can I tease what is the emotional landscape hidden in that concrete landscape, right? That's part of the process, right? That's part of the process of what I, I try to tease out. I don't know the answer all the time. I don't know what the emotional landscape is, even for me. It's a process of discovery. Uh, but again, you know, we have the tools with which to mine that, and, and that's the, you know, that's the 10,000 hours that you put in. Um, but essentially, I think on, a, on another sort of, maybe this is a different question, but, when I sit down to write a poem, I think what it is is to use language to access the subconscious through the conscious mind. And when the unconscious and the conscious meet, there's this spark where the poem starts writing itself. And that's, I think, what you see when you read a poem as a reader or a listener, you recognize that, that also that same process happens in you. Uh, that something, you know, again, like how many times I might have seen a red wheelbarrow and suddenly, um, you know, you see it in a poem and you're like, wow, yeah, you know, that makes sense. Um, that's, I hadn't seen that before, you know, and, and that yet there it is, right? And I had seen it before, but I hadn't seen the emotional landscape behind it. I have a poem, if you'd like, um, that really sort of talks about that. Absolutely. So in uh, this poem... I had been away, for, I had moved out of Miami and had been away for about eight years and then I moved back and of course um, I thought nothing had changed and everything had changed in Miami and in this particular place, which is not in Miami, but a place that we used to frequent on the west coast since I was a child, sort of a staycation, poor man's vacation of like <laughs> $79 at this cheap motel called the Gulf Motel. And I went back there with my partner to sort of take that proverbial trip down memory lane. And, and it had just completely changed. Um, so here's the poem. Looking for the Gulf Motel, Marco Island, Florida. There should be nothing here I don't remember. The Gulf Motel with mermaid lampposts and ship's wheel in the lobby should still be rising out of the sand like a cake decoration. My brother and I should still be pretending we don't know our parents, embarrassing us as they roll the luggage cart past the front desk, loaded with our scruffy suitcases, two dozen loaves of Cuban bread, brown bags bulging with enough mangoes to last the entire week, our espresso pot, the pressure cooker, and a pork roast reeking garlic through the marble lobby. All because we can't afford to eat out, mijo. Not even on vacation. Only two hours from our home in Miami, but far enough away to be thrilled by the wider sands on the west coast of Florida, where I should still be, for the first time, watching the sunset instead of rise over the ocean. There should be nothing here I don't remember. My mother should still be in the kitchenette of the Gulf Motel, her daisy sandals from Kmart still squeaking across the linoleum, still gorgeous in her teal swimsuit and amber earrings, stirring a pot of arroz con pollo, adding sprinkles of onion powder and dollops of tomato sauce. My father should still be in a terrycloth jacket, 
smoking, clinking a glass of amber whiskey in the sunset at the Gulf Motel, watching us dive into the pool, two sons he'll never see grow into men who will be proud of him. There should be nothing here I don't remember. My brother and I should still be playing Parcheesi. My father should still be alive, slow dancing with my mother on the sliding glass balcony of the golf motel. No music, only the waves keeping time. A song only their minds hear, 10,000 nights back to their life in Cuba. My mother's face should still be resting against his bare chest like the moon resting on the sea. And the stars, the stars should still be turning around them. There should be nothing here I don't remember. My brother should still be 13, sneaking rum in the bathroom and sculpting naked women from sand. And I, I should still be eight years old, dazzled by seashells and how many seconds I can hold my breath underwater. But I'm not. I'm 38 driving up Collier Boulevard, looking for the Gulf Motel, for everything that should still be, but isn't. I want to blame the condos, their shadows for ruining the beach and my past. I want to chase the snowbirds away with their tacky McMansions and yachts. I want to turn the golf courses back into mangroves. I want to find the Gulf Motel exactly as it was and pretend Pretend for just a moment that nothing I've lost is lost. Such a beautiful poem. Everybody has a golf motel of their own, so to speak, whether that's a grandmother's kitchen table or a home in Rome or a, a special room in the house or some aunt's house. It's, it's something that I've found in responses to the poem um, that, like all poetry, you know, it's trying to get through the universal, through the particular. And so that sense of home and belonging, those boundaries that we actually sometimes didn't hate it, right? Those come to define us and free us at the same time sometimes. So much of your work takes us back to your childhood and, and to Miami and to uh, your family. How much of that for you as a writer and just as a person is about personally trying to kind of preserve those memories and preserve that feeling of home on some level? When I first started writing was because that big question in a way also happened, um, which was, where am I from? There was all those questions I was sort of asking subconsciously, but just sort of going about my life as a, as a child and as a teenager and as a young adult. So in part, writing was a way to investigate who I was and what all this meant. Writing became the vehicle for that. It became to suddenly go over the fine details of my life that were there, but I hadn't, hadn't consciously paid attention to it. To paraphrase Anais Nain, who says, you know, writers taste life twice. So that was certainly part of what I just needed to do. Um, but the other piece of it was that as I got more and more to the story, that in some ways I had, re not rejected, but 
you know, it's my parents' story. It's my grandparents' story. And like any healthy teenager, you whatever your parents do, you kind of immediate immediate grounds for rejection, right? So I think there's this false narrative that that immigrants or children of immigrants or or exiles, you know, that we grow up completely embracing and loving our culture. We actually, it's just human nature. We actually most of the time we respond against it, and it's more of a cultural coming of age story uh, or path. And learning that, oh my God, all these stories are mine, and they they weren't lying, and they they aren't exaggerated, and they are these beautiful tragic stories in in my family, in my community, and I need to catch up, and I need to read them, and and they're part of who I am, and I'm the inheritor of these of these stories. So part of the impulse to write was also as what I call to be an emotional historian, to preserve not not the not the political story necessarily, not the factual story necessarily, but the emotional history, not only of my family, not only of my generation as Cuban-Americans, which go through a particular set of emotional conflicts and negotiation, but also uh, the community at large. And certainly that is an impulse that I still hold, and I think a lot of writers do, is to document what does it feel like to be a human being in your time and age, right? That's part of still what I'm doing with my latest book, With Boundaries, is to document what is this incredible pivotal moment in America, you know, what are we feeling, these boundaries that we're clashing against or, or, haven't, or haven't addressed, right, um, yet. Uh, you know, or haven't finished addressing, right? And what does that feel like, right? That's important to me. You've written a memoir now about uh, your childhood in Miami. You've written a number of poems about uh, that time in your life. Do you still feel that there's there's more to mine from that? Or do you feel like you've kind of done what you needed to do as far as understanding uh, where you come from in that sense? Um, I want to say that I'm done, but with creativity, you never know what subconscious thing is going to pop up. I would say done in the sense that I'm not actively sort of looking only towards my childhood or that. However, for me, it was probably the biggest time in my life where there was, you know, I, I think we all come back to some age um, and it's at least, if not writing about it, it's a constant reference point. Um, everybody has that age. So for some, it's 45. For some, it's 7. For some, it's 13. And for me, it was those years between 7 and 17 that the memoir captures where there was so much going on subconsciously that it just made an imprint that I think affects you know, everything else that I write about, even if I'm not writing about it. So, but in a way, I, I feel like I have sort of mined a lot, 90% of it. Um, and I think just before the White House called me to write this poem for the inauguration, um, <laughs> this little poem for the inauguration, I was kind of like wondering what's the next project because I was kind of reached this conclusion that I'm speaking to you about now. And luckily, as luck would have it, this gave me a whole sort of new, a new charge, a new, a new assignment, so to speak, which was still exploring the question of home and boundaries and negotiating them, but just in a larger, more um, inclusive scale, right? So it's not just what does that mean for me, but what does that mean for us? And I call it, you know, more, I'm more focused on the poetry of we versus the poetry of I. 
hearing your story, there's this kind of sense of growing up in this Cuban exile community, coming to understand what what that means to you, what it means to be an American to you, having this opportunity to speak at the inauguration. Like there, there's a sort of nice beginning, middle and end to that story in a way uh, that ends with the inauguration of, of Barack Obama and, and your sort of coming into your Americanness in that moment on some level. I'm interested in the fact that here we are five years later and and there's a very different story being written. How, how do you hold that in your mind and that sense of connection to the country while uh, the narrative is changing and while sort of some of those landmarks seem to be kind of uh, a little more fragile than maybe they seemed at the time? Right, right. So there's, there's many sort of ways and analogies here. I think there's... Um, this whole idea of becoming in terms of rite of passage. And of course, we have very significant thresholds, you know, turning 17 or 18, you know, turning 30-something, 30 turning 50. But but really, we're constantly becoming. The inauguration was, in a way, a moment of becoming a rite of passage. So that was, yes, an amazing moment. I actually turned to my mother at one moment and said, you know, Mom, I guess we're finally Americanos, right? Like, <laughs> what else, you know, what else besides <laughs> besides this could could really, you know, <laughs> give you the sense of place? And, of course, that hasn't changed in a sense. But what I also realized in that moment was that, uh, that America was a work in progress, that it was a narrative, um, that it was a, another kind of story that still needs to be written. And, you know, we do take two steps forward and three steps back and five steps forward and two steps back, but that it is our job as, as citizens to, in a democracy at least, to continue writing that narrative, right? To add a sentence, to add a paragraph, to add a chapter, to write that narrative, to add to that narrative for those who can't do it yet, right? And so in a way, I, I, I don't want to say I was blessed, but like, you know, the problems that we're having now, I think we're always there, but it's given me work. It's given me more of a sense of duty, more of a sense of fighting for that moment that I felt at that inauguration to make sure that that doesn't disappear, to make sure that that, 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 that the narrative continues to evolve. And I think that was largely what I came away from in the idea of a participatory democracy. And where, what I don't like where we are in this place right now is that we've surrendered the, our democracy into just party lines. And so if you think about how party ideology permeates almost every single part of our lives now, if you drive a Subaru, what are you? <laughs> if you shop at Whole Foods, what are you? If you drive a red pickup, what are you? If you shop at at, uh, at Walmart, what are you? You know, we've completely sort of objectified ourselves along these political lines and have surrendered, uh, you know, our Democratic Party to voting for somebody who at the end of the day is caught up in a, in a system that is, we need to fix this system. It sounds to me like part of what you're saying is that the poetry can kind of be a force um, in the fight against that objectification that you were talking about, both in the sense of how we objectify others, but also how we kind of objectify ourselves when we think about our political identity and our sort of relationship to uh, our politics in this country. Certainly, certainly. And and poets do a lot of that work. And it's funny because you see, you've seen a spike in poetry. Uh, we turn to poetry in times of confusion, in times of protest, in times of great joy and triumph 
that's exactly right. I mean, what poetry does is to ground abstract issues and abstract empty language, right? You know, if I hear one more person say something like, you're my thoughts and prayers, I'm like, seriously? I mean, you might as well say, you know, bobbly bobbly boo, you know, like <laughs> we're just empty language, right? Um, the degradation of the language, which I'll point it out, politics aside, you know, the language of our present president is just deplorable. When we have leaders who are using language that is so decayed and so empty and vacuous and meaningless, that's a problem. <laughs> uh, so poets try to preserve language is another way of thinking about it. Uh, but besides that, we try to, I think what we try to do is, again, ground that abstraction, that abstract language and those abstract issues with real names and real faces and real people and build another kind of conversation. When you ask me about being a political poet or, or whatnot, in that way, that's why I don't like to necessarily categorize myself as a political poet because I think a lot of what gets categorized as political poetry sort of stays in the problem. Uh, or I should say some of the poetry that is quote-unquote political stays in the problem. And it doesn't offer us a way out. It doesn't offer us a third option. And so it's sort of in some ways preaching to the choir. And so, you know, it's more than just rallying, you know, the base. <laughs> it's more about connecting people. And that's what I try to do. And that's with love. That's with compassion. That's with the same old tools that we, that we know are proven over and over again. And I think when you speak from that sense of a spiritual confidence, I think those are the, the, the best poems, the ones that really move people. So we're kind of nearing the end here, but I'd love to have you read another poem before we go. Sure. I think I'll read this poem that maybe touches on many of the things we've talked about, um, maybe even at least tangentially. Um, but the idea of always being and always becoming, that nothing really, nothing, you don't ever really finish being, but also in the way that poetry is always trying to ask those questions of being and belonging and one's narrative and one's boundaries and the way that we're all, in some ways, uh, a work in progress, an unfinished, an unfinished piece. So I think, I think it echoes a lot of that. Since unfinished. I've been writing this since the summer. My grandfather taught me how to hold a blade of grass between my thumbs and make it whistle. Since I first learned to make green from blue and yellow, turned paper into snowflakes, believed a seashell echoed the sea, and the sea had no end. I've been writing this since a sparrow flew into my class and crashed into the window, laid to rest on a bed of tissue in a shoebox by the swings. Since the morning I first stood up on the bathroom sink to watch my father shave, since our eyes met in that foggy mirror, since the splinter my mother pulled from my thumb and kissed my blood. I've been writing this since the woman I slept with the night of my father's wake, since my grandmother first called me a sissy and I said nothing, since I forgave her and my body pressed hard against Michael on the dance floor at Twist, since the years spent with a martini and men I knew I couldn't love. I've been writing this since the night I pulled off the road at Big Sur and my eyes caught the insanity of the stars. Since the months by the kitchen window watching the snow come down like fallout 
from a despair I had no word for. Since I stopped searching for a name and found myself tick-tock in a hammock, asking nothing of the sky. I've been writing this since spring, studying the tiny leaves on the oaks dithering like moths, contrast to the eon-old fieldstones unveiled of snow, but forever works in progress. Since tonight, with the battled moon behind the branches spying on the world, same as it ever was, perfectly unfinished. My glasses and pen at rest again on the night table. I've been writing this since my eyes started seeing less, my knees aching more. Since I began picking up twigs, feathers, and pretty rocks for no reason, collecting on the porch where I sit to read and watch the sunset like my grandfather did every day, remembering him and how to make a blade of grass whistle. Richard Blanco, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been such an honor and such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Jake. Um, it's been great. This podcast is a co-production of 91.5 KRCC and Converge Lecture Series. Converge is a nonprofit program bringing some of the biggest names in contemporary poetry and literature to Colorado Springs. For more information and a schedule of upcoming lectures, head to www.convergelectureseries.org. Stay tuned. We'll have more conversations like this one in the coming months here on the Converge Lecture Series podcast from 91.5 KRCC. Subscribe to the show on iTunes or Google Play or head to krcc.org to get new episodes as soon as they're released. Thanks for listening. I'm Jake Brownell.